This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to Mind Your Business. I'm Lauren Feldman. I'm Chief Content Officer for the Oxford Center for Entrepreneurs. Thanks for joining us today. We've got two terrific guests lined up. In the second half of the show, we will talk with Josh Reeves, who is CEO of Gusto, a subscription-based software business that helps small businesses handle human resource issues. We'll talk to Josh about his own entrepreneurial journey and about what he's learned uh, about what it takes to run a business and how his software addresses those pain points. But first, we're going to speak with an entrepreneur who is a declared candidate for president of the United States. His name is Andrew Yang, and he founded Venture for America, a fellowship program that sought to create jobs and train future entrepreneurs by placing recent college graduates with startups in cities like Cleveland, Detroit, Baltimore, Pittsburgh. More recently, when uh, Andrew Yang concluded that technologies like artificial intelligence are threatening to eliminate a third of all American jobs, he decided that he needed to step away from Venture for America and do something bigger, like run for president. His most important policy uh, initiative is uh, a proposal to institute something called universal basic income, which would basically mean sending $1,000 a month to every American, uh, which certainly uh, will have a, its appeal to some people. Uh, Andrew Yang, welcome to Mind Your Business. Hey, Lauren. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Really great to have you. Appreciate you taking the time. Uh, how's it going? It's going really well. Um, heading to D.C. Uh, tomorrow to debate universal basic income in front of hundreds of libertarian students, then out to L.A. for a fundraiser, uh, and then after that, um, back to uh, Iowa, New Hampshire, uh, which is where you go if you're running for president. Are you enjoying this? Yeah, it's been a blast. Um, you know, the the great thing is the campaign's based on some big ideas that I think many of the people that are listening to this can agree with, uh, because if you're running your own business, you're trying to grow uh, lean and mean. Uh, I've been in, in the same boat. I ran a private company, as you know, Lauren, um, and that you want to be a good person, a good manager, but a lot of the times your financial incentives are to do more with less, to uh, automate certain functions, to have certain people be contractors and not full-time employees because healthcare um, is really expensive and it's expensive for the employer. So I've been where uh, many of your listeners have been, and I'm convinced that right now our economy needs to evolve very quickly if entrepreneurs are really going to have a chance. What's the main reason you're running for president? Well, I spent six years, as you know, with Venture for America uh, trying to help create thousands of jobs in the Midwest and the South in cities like Michigan, um, cities like Detroit and Cleveland and St. Louis and Birmingham, and we succeeded. We helped create several thousand jobs, uh, but I realized that for every job we were creating, technology is going to eliminate 10 or even 100 jobs, that many of those regions were struggling with the automation of 4 million manufacturing jobs between 2000 and now. And we're about to do the same thing to workers in retail, call centers, fast food, truck driving, and on and on through the economy, as well as white-collar jobs like accounting and, and uh, legal work and insurance brokerages. So I realized that we're in the third inning of the greatest economic and technological transformation in the history of the world. And the third inning brought us directly to Donald Trump as president. Because if you look at it, the 4 million manufacturing jobs that were automated away were based in 
Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Missouri, Iowa, the swing states you needed to win. And as technology continues to evolve in ways that kicks more and more Americans to the curb, our political system will get ever more dysfunctional. Wasn't Venture for America kind of addressing those issues as well? Well, that was certainly a division, Lauren, and then you and I met during those years. Uh, so I, I quit my job to start Venture for America, and we succeeded. We uh, helped dozens of entrepreneurs start dozens of companies that raised over $40 million and created hundreds of jobs, and then the entrepreneurs they're working with created thousands of jobs. And it's still so going, getting... uh, ongoing without you, correct? Oh, yeah, it's very much, and, and that's one of the proudest things that you can have as an entrepreneur is when an organization continues to thrive and grow without you. Uh, and, and I was, as you know, getting invited to the White House and being given awards for my work with Venture for America, but I had the sinking feeling that uh, all the great work we were doing was like pouring water into a bathtub that has a giant hole ripped in the bottom. And as many people listening to this know, entrepreneurs want to solve problems. And so if you feel like the problem is even bigger, then you need even bigger solutions. What Take us to, to one of those cities and... Could you kind of paint the picture for us of what you saw there, um, what, what, were you, what, what Venture for America was doing, how it worked, and, and then you know, what you saw that led you to take this uh, more recent step? Sure. So I'll use Detroit as an example. We spent a lot of time there. Uh, and there's even a movie about Venture for America in Detroit that's on Netflix right now with an Oscar-winning filmmaker called Generation Startup. And I sense that many of the people listening to this are entrepreneurs. It's a movie about six young entrepreneurs trying to build businesses in Detroit over a year and a half. So it's like a, a love letter to entrepreneurs, really, that movie. But and, Detroit, And it focuses on Venture for America? Um, it touches uh, Venture for America fellow stories, um, but it's really like a universal entrepreneurship story um, more than anything else. So... Detroit is a city with um, a former population of 1.7 million, and that's what the city's designed for. It's like a fairly physically large place. Now it has a population of 680,000. So it's lost almost two-thirds of its population, and so the city is physically two-thirds empty. And uh, over the last number of years, we brought dozens of awesome, talented aspiring entrepreneurs to Detroit, and some of them have started organizations and businesses that employ people. Uh, we had a training camp there this past summer. Um, but then if you look around, you realize that the problems that have hit Detroit um, are orders of magnitude bigger than most anyone could dream. Uh, if you have a city that's two-thirds empty, then there's physical blight um, in a lot of different places. Um, it, it's what I call negative infrastructure, where when your infrastructure becomes costly and value negative, uh, and so th they have their work cut out for them. And so I saw, even as my uh, incredible friends were doing like this awesome work, and some of them were reclaiming houses. I mean, you're talking about uh, a city that um, has been devastated by the forces that have upended uh, manufacturing economies, in particular. Tell us uh, how uh, Venture for America uh, actually worked. You, uh, your, your goal was to provide uh, recent college graduates uh, who would serve as uh, a workforce for startups. Uh, the graduates would uh, provide that labor, but also 
uh, get a front row seat on entrepreneurship and learn how it works, uh, essentially get be a, an entrepreneurial MBA that would, uh, you hoped, I believe, uh, lead to their, uh, them starting their own businesses uh, in, in the future. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And anyone here is listening to this who's either a recent college graduate or student or has a son or daughter or niece or nephew, I started Venture for America with the vision that um, we needed a Teach for America for entrepreneurship, where if a recent college graduate wanted to get started as uh, a startup business person, it's very, very hard to find. It's very hard to identify. You don't get trained. Um, and so college graduates and college seniors apply to Venture for America every year. And if they get in, then they go to a month-long training camp with McKinsey and IDEO and Flatiron School, and then they work for startups for two years. And at the end, if they want to start their own business, we have a small seed fund uh, and an accelerator to help them do so. So it's a national entrepreneurship fellowship with an emphasis on cities like Detroit, uh, Cleveland, Baltimore, and other cities that could use a boost. Can you quantify the impact it had on uh, any of those cities? Well, in total nationwide, uh, we've created about 3,000 jobs, either through helping businesses grow or our founders going on to start businesses themselves. And we operate now in about 15 cities. So, you know, if you um, average those 3,000 uh, jobs over 15 cities, you get a sense of, of the work. And the work, I'm happy to say, grows um, every, every day, every week, every year. I'm Lauren Feldman. My guest is Andrew Yang, founder of Venture for America. He's now running for president of the United States, focusing on a handful of issues that we will uh, be discussing. If you've got a question uh, about what Andrew has done in the past or what he's doing now, give us a call. We're at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Andrew, before we move on to uh, to the issues that that you're focusing on, and, and by the way, the, the issues that you've highlighted in a terrific but slightly scary book called The War on Normal People, uh, The Truth About America's Disappearing Jobs and uh, Why Universal Basic Income is Our Future. Um, I, I'm curious about you. You have a really unusual view of, of entrepreneurship uh, in this country. I know you. Um, you, you and I met, if you remember, at the Kauffman Institute in, in Kansas City. Uh, we took a tour of the Kansas City Startup Village uh, that day, which I don't think basically exists anymore. Uh, but you you spent a lot of time on the East Coast and Silicon Valley, and of course in these cities that you've talked about. You you, you know you, you have a perspective on entrepreneurship across the country that I think few people have. Um, what, what do you see going on with entrepreneurship right now? One thing that concerns a lot of people is there, there are a lot fewer businesses getting started right now uh, than have been in the past. We, you know, we tend to kind of congratulate ourselves. We think of ourselves as a very entrepreneurial people, and uh, certainly entrepreneurship has been very cool for a lot of time, but, but there's something going on there. What, what's your view on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the trends for entrepreneurship uh, nationally are disastrous, where rates of business formation are down in over 80% of markets, uh, particularly for young people. And if you look at venture capital, which is obviously only one uh, part of uh, entrepreneurship, but 75 to 80% of venture capital goes to companies in one of three states, New York, California, or Massachusetts. So if you're in one of the other 47 states, you're fighting over about 20% uh, of venture capital. And so when you go nationwide, you see the inequities um, where if there's a successful company that is touching a big market in Kansas City or Providence or Detroit, 
um, there's a real temptation for them to move to San Francisco or New York if they wind up getting big money. Um, you need really determined founders in many cases who have a, a, an attachment to another part of the country to build a, a, a successful growth company in these places. Um, and if you think about the entrepreneurial opportunities of yesteryear, a lot of it would be that someone would uh, start a flower shop or hardware store or something in their main street. And now most of those opportunities don't exist um, because of Amazon um, and the fact that now you have 1-800-Flowers and the rest of it. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's like, like people talk about the Internet as some great equalizer in terms of everyone can start a company. It's sort of true, but it, it's much more likely that everyone can – you know, sell a craft on Etsy for like, you know, 20 bucks than it is that someone's going to start some significant enterprise. Because at this point, the opportunities and efficiencies are getting wrung out by a handful of mega companies. In many cases, these mega companies don't even need to make money on each sale. Um, and so it's very, very hard to compete with that in many industries. And you think that's the reason fewer businesses are getting started? You know, we've unfortunately really compounded the problem. So I look at it from the perspective of a young person. If you're a young person and, and you do go to college, your average debt load is going to be about 38000 uh, and then you're going to have a tough time finding a stable job. And so asking that person to start a business is very unrealistic in many cases because they're like, look, I owe tens of thousands of dollars and I need to try and pay back, and I can't even find a steady job. Uh, you know, in, in other generations, you might have mortgaged your home to start a business. Today, the rates of home ownership among young people are lower because they're not being set up to succeed at those levels. So we've let these problems compound across regions and across generations. And then we've hyped it up by saying, like, oh, look at Facebook. As if Facebook's success is going to like somehow uh, – mean that we have legions of um, people starting companies in their college dorm rooms. Yeah, I think fewer people are holding up Facebook as an example of a, a huge success these days than uh, <laughs> a few years ago. Uh, but but I take your point. Uh, you know, along with the conversation about why there are fewer uh, businesses getting started right now, I, I also hear a lot of talk about, you know, is capitalism uh, in trouble? I, I hear it in particular from millennials, especially from a couple that I helped raise. Um, What's your view on that? Do you uh, do you think capitalism is in trouble? Oh, I think capitalism is doing exactly what it's supposed to do. Um, but I, I like to quote a friend of mine, Eric Weinstein, who said, none of us realized that capitalism was going to get eaten by its son, technology. <laughs> Where a lot of the things that you take for granted about capitalism, like if a company becomes successful, it's going to hire more people and pay them well and treat them well. A lot of those things are breaking down. Where now companies can become very profitable with only a very, very small handful of employees. And when they do hire people, they'll make them temp or gig or contract workers. Uh, and they don't care what happens in their own backyard because their markets are global. So oh. technology is creating dynamics that are breaking down uh, the natural dissemination of economic benefits. And so millennials in particular, like your children, um, feel like capitalism is not great because they've only seen the worst of it. Um, and so the unfortunate part is that if we're stuck in this capitalism, socialism uh, dyad, where what we really need is we need to upgrade capitalism so that it works to our benefit. Um, so the answer is not uh, socialism or capitalism. Um, it's a little bit more like uh, complex than that, where we need elements of both.
I'm Lauren Feldman. My guest is Andrew Yang, founder of Venture for America, now a candidate for president of the United States. If you've got a question for Andrew, give us a call. We're at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So, Andrew, we've talked a lot about about the the problems that you see out there. Uh, You've... um, well, first, let's, let's talk a little bit more uh, about the disappearing jobs. Um, it, uh, everybody, I th- yeah, most people know exactly what you're talking about. We, we've all seen examples of it, whether it's you know ordering from a kiosk in a fast food place, or uh, you know all the talk about autonomous vehicles. Uh, you know, clearly there's something going on, but I, I, it seems to me that there's a wide divergence of opinion as to how quickly it's coming. What's your thought on that? Well, the thing that shocked me, and it sounds like you read my book so you have a sense of this, um, is that this is no longer speculative, that we're already in the midst of it. Uh, And so if you look back to 2000, we had 17 million manufacturing workers in this country, and today we have something like 12 million. So those 5 million lost jobs, 4 million of them were due to advancing technology. And if you look at what happened to the displaced workers, almost half of them left the workforce, never to be heard from again. And about half of that group filed for disability, and it led to epic social dysfunction, drug addiction, alcohol abuse, uh, suicide rates spiking, um, and Donald Trump becoming elected. Um, And so people who think that all of this stuff is speculative aren't paying attention to um, what happened to the manufacturing workers. And as you said, everyone can see clearer as day that it's happening to the restaurant workers, retail workers and eventually the car and truck drivers, which will be an utter disaster, because you're looking at about 4 million uh, workers, the vast majority of whom are unskilled men, uh, all of a sudden not being able to make a living. Uh, And that's going to be a recipe for disaster. But I think a couple of years ago, we thought, you know, autonomous vehicles were, you know, might even be a thing by now. Um, There there have been issues, there have been problems. Do you still think that's almost here? Well, they tell me that we're five to ten years away, and the thing that I'm going to suggest to people is if you just – like, this is a losing argument, is that it's going to take longer than we think. Although it does make it – I mean, it depends on how much longer it is. Obviously, there's no big difference between two years or three years, but two yeah, years and ten exactly. years makes a difference. And, you know, the economy has made – uh, big adjustments in the past. Um, you know, there are a lot fewer people employed on farms these days, um, and and we, we seem to have adapted to that. Uh, given enough time, might we adapt to this as well? Well, again, it, it depends upon who you think is doing the adapting. I mean, I 100% agree that we're going to create many, many wondrous new jobs we have not predicted, um, but those jobs will tend to be in different places for different people with different skills and smaller numbers than the people who are being displaced. So certainly if you stretch the time frame out uh, at, like ad infinitum, um, but I'll tell you, like I talk to insurance executives who are uh, firing hundreds of brokers right now, bank executives who are firing uh, hundreds or even thousands of back office workers right now, like uh, hoping for the self-driving trucks and cars to be like 10 years away instead of five years away, um, is not the answer. Okay, so why is universal basic income, sending a check uh, of $1,000 a month to every American, why is that the, the correct answer? Yeah, and as you suggest, that is my flagship proposal. Uh, and I, I become convinced that we need to move towards what I call the freedom dividend, uh, which would send $1,000 a month to every American adult 
uh, starting at age 18. So if you're listening to this, think about how much more entrepreneurial you and everyone you know would be if everyone was getting $1,000 a month. Uh, and so that's the kind of move we need to make, Lauren, because it would help our economy evolve. It would help broaden our notion of what work is uh, beyond what currently exists as subsistence labor arrangements in every direction. Uh, and one of the reasons I've concluded this is that if you ask other politicians, they might say, we need to educate and retrain Americans for the jobs of the future. But when I looked at the data, government-funded retraining programs have a success rate of between 0 and 15%, and fewer than 10% of workers qualify as those programs currently exist. So this is like is a made-up solution. It's the sort of thing that sounds good, but then you go back to your lunch, and no one's actually doing any retraining. <laughs> and, well, it, it, and no one realistically knows what you're retraining a lot of these people for. Like, what are you going to retrain half a million truck drivers and like two million uh, cashiers to do? Like, what is that new job? Um, and so, are you convinced training has gotten a fair trial? I mean, my, my sense is sort of what I think I heard you just say that it, it, you know it gets talked a lot more than it's actually done. Uh, and it, it seems like there are some jobs where it could apply. I mean, there are a lot of green tech jobs that people talk about. Uh, if we were to put money into more money into that area, uh, that could create oh, jobs. I, I'm, I'm for infrastructure. Mm. I'm for uh, implementing something along the lines of a green new deal, where we try and make our economy more sustainable and create new jobs in that direction. I'm for all of that. Um, but we also have to face facts where this transition is going to be beyond difficult for many, many millions of Americans. It already is by the numbers. Americans are moving across state lines and starting new businesses and getting married and having children all at record lows. Um, and you know what's record highs? Suicides, deaths of despair, anxiety and depression. Like, you don't have to look far. I mean, you can see we're coming apart right now. Uh, and so a move like the Freedom Dividend would help make people and stronger, more um, people and families and communities more resilient. But it would also be the greatest catalyst to entrepreneurship and creativity that we've ever seen. And we can 100% afford it. Our economy now is up to over $19 trillion a year, up $4 trillion in the last 10 years alone. Uh, this might not have been affordable a while ago, even though it passed the House of Representatives in 1971. So I guess they thought we could afford it then. Um, but it's affordable now. There are different versions uh, of this proposal. It's interesting because it's um, it's a proposal that does have support on both the left and the right. Um, but uh, there are different versions of it. Some on the right, I think, are, are interested in this proposal because they see it as a way to get rid of other entitlement spending uh, and just uh, actually save money by doing this. Um, there's also the issue of do you send this check to everybody as you're proposing, I think, uh, over 18, or do you, is there some needs basis uh, for who gets the money? Uh, how important are those issues? Yeah, I, I agree with you that people both on both the left and the right uh, have gotten behind this historically, where um, everyone from Martin Luther King to Richard Nixon has been for it, and Milton Friedman, who people think of as like the most conservative libertarian economist uh, around. I think he's dead now. <laughs> I think um, he is. So, so uh, we like to say it's not left or right, it's forward, because people on the left like that it's transferring more money to more people, and people on the right like it because it's not some giant government bureaucracy 
uh, wasting our money. It's the money coming back to us, and it increases economic freedom for people uh, at every part of society. I, you know, I, I'm no economist. Is there some danger when you just pass out $1,000 checks to everybody that it's uh, inflationary, the price of everything goes up, and it doesn't have the impact that you're hoping it will have? Well, if you look at it, I dug into this, um, most consumer goods continue to get less and less expensive. And if you think about it, like electronics, apparel, uh, cars, entertainment, food, um, like all of them are either staying relatively stable in price or going down, or you can get more for the same amount of money. The things that are driving Americans crazy in terms of cost inflation are education, healthcare, and housing. And those things are not becoming more expensive because we all have so much money to spend. Um, education is because college has gotten two and a half times more expensive, and then just the loan, uh, like the debt burden has like skyrocketed. Healthcare, it's like o- opaque, uh, non-functioning markets where they have this middleman industry that um, then profits off of more activity. Um, and housing because there are certain metro areas where Americans feel they have to live in order to access um, the right opportunities. So putting $1,000 a month into people's hands will not cause massive inflation. Uh, It'll actually help Americans manage inflation where it does exist, uh, but there's still going to be price sensitivity for every consumer and competition across firms. So it's not like all of a sudden your hamburger is going to become $12. Is $1,000 a month to help the the desperate people that you described uh, initially? you know, and, and talk about the people who are who are not making it um, these days. Is is that enough money to to turn their lives around? Especially if it, it doesn't, it doesn't. I don't hear you connecting the dots to this creating a job for them. Um, it's 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 just a check. Am I right? Oh, it, it will create a job for them. Oh, okay. How how does if, yeah connect if you those take dots? A town of fifty thousand people in Missouri, fifty thousand adults. And then let's say the freedom dividend kicks in, and all of a sudden you have another $50 million in that town getting spent. Um, most of that, that money is going to go right back to their Main Street economy. It's going to go to car repairs, tutoring and food for their kids, the occasional night out, home repairs. And then all of those businesses are going to hire more people, and then there are going to be more jobs in that town. Um, this is a rebalancing of the economy that creates several million jobs around the country. It also makes it so that if you had an idea for, let's say, like a bakery um, that bakery becomes a much better idea because now that you have another $50 million getting spent in that town every month, now your bakery makes sense. And if your bakery does not work, then you're not going to die because you're still getting $1,000 a month. So it, it creates jobs at the ground floor. You it's think that's like enough money, money in, a, in a town like that to, to counteract the, the dynamic you described before of you know, the internet, internet sucking um, you know, jobs away from, uh, from smaller towns? Well, it would certainly be a dramatic improvement over what's happening right now and a dramatic improvement over anything that anyone else is talking about. Um, so, you know, like $1,000 a month, I've been all over the country, $1,000 a month would be a game changer for many, many people in many, many parts of the country. Let's, uh, let's take a phone call from Missouri. Elliot, uh, welcome to Mind Your Business. Hello, how are you doing? Doing great. Thanks for calling in. What's on your mind? Well, I was just talking because when I hear you guys talking about um, entrepreneurship and the business economy, I just see so many people um, trying now to live off of eight, nine hundred dollars a month, Social Security and disability, and 
you know, I don't own multiple businesses from car dealerships to mortgage companies. And you, even when I'm a realtor in Miami and you just see all these people, four or five applying for jobs just because they can't afford, I mean, applying for apartment together or condo because they can't afford their places and left all of them on the application together. So I don't, I really don't see how giving these same people now another thousand dollars is going to really benefit them towards entrepreneurship. I think it actually be more of a hindrance where they just going to continue to try to live off of thousand dollars a month for their everyday housing car Needs. Elliot, are you, are you saying that you you think the $1,000 check would reduce entrepreneurship because it would take away the motivation to start a business? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, because I just that's what I see all the time. I just see so many who are fighting to get a eight, $900 a month disability check, but they don't have to work. Andrew, I'm no sure are. there are a lot of people who, uh, who suspect the same thing that Elliot is suggesting. Uh, how do you respond? Well, part of it is that uh, if you're already getting a disability check, it's not like we're going to give you another thousand dollars a month. Um, so the, this thousand dollars a month is uh, in parallel to existing government programs, and so if you're already getting more than a thousand dollars, then this will not touch you. Um, and it's in part because if someone's already getting enough to meet their basic needs, then they should be all set. Um, and so, so that's number one. Uh, number two is that you have to look at the $1,000 extrapolated over the economy, where if there are some people that are still spending on their basic needs, it's still going to mean many more opportunities for other people who want to take advantage of the fact that there's just more money circulating through that town, even if some people are just spending it on uh, you know, their, their entertainment and food. Elliot, thank you for your phone call. Really appreciate it. Uh, Andrew, you, you've been, you, I think you were the first person to declare for president. You've been going around the country. You've been making this argument. You wrote your book. Do you feel that your argument for universal basic income is getting traction? You know, it, it really is. I'm happy to say, Lauren, uh, we've already raised hundreds of thousand dollars uh, in increments. The, our average donation is only $11. So I joke that my fans are even cheaper than Bernie's. Uh, and... <laughs> The campaign grows every day. CNN included me in their recent poll. Uh, Time Magazine is doing a story on us. Um, yeah, like we're, we can compete at the highest levels and win. But certainly if anyone listening to this thinks that I was talking sense, please do go to yang2020.com. Um, every little bit counts. Social media follows. With your help, I can make the Democratic primary debate stage in June and make the case of the fact that we have to evolve as a people and as an economy as fast as we can. Are there questions that you get that you struggle with that make you wonder if this uh, really can succeed, if there's a chance that it would be adopted, or that make you wonder even, you know, question the, the effectiveness of uh, universal basic income? You know, most of the questions I get, Lauren, like remind me of this thing that a neuroscientist said to me, which I believe is really fundamentally correct, is that the, the enemy of something like universal basic income is the human mind. Uh, because we are programmed for resource scarcity. It is what has helped us survive. It's helped us organize society. And so there's this knee-jerk reaction people have that if if you give something to everyone, it's going to hurt them or hurt us or we can't do it. <laughs> and and, um, and, and that this is really the fundamental challenge because a mindset of scarcity is already tearing us apart. You can see it. Like blame immigrants, you know, like someone else is getting getting by on something I should on, on stuff I should be getting, um, and so our only chance 
to get through what's going to be a very, very difficult time is by uh, adopting a mindset of abundance, of optimism, of possibility, and of shared humanity. And that's what this campaign's about. If we succeed in this, we can actually celebrate things like self-driving cars and trucks as liberation for um, millions of American workers who right now their bodies are getting punished by sitting in a truck 11 hours a day. Um, unfortunately, right now, those truckers get paid $46,000 a year, and then they think they're going to go to zero. So instead of celebrating, they're going to be rioting. Um, so we have a lot of work cut out for us, but the campaign grows every day. Uh, and that, that's one of the most invigorating things about running for president, I found. Andrew Yang, thank you so much for joining us today. Will you uh, check back in as your, uh, as your campaign continues with us? We'd love to talk to you again. Sure thing, Lauren. I love entrepreneurs, and it's entrepreneurs that are going to save this country. So congrats on the work you all do, and I know how hard it is. I've been an entrepreneur. It's isolating. It's difficult, but it can change the world, and uh, that's what we're going to prove. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 